Okay, so let me be clear, we're in the danger zone today, people. Um, at the start of the chapter, there is somewhere between 15 to 20,000 people are following Jesus. And to do that means more than just rolling up to church in a car. It meant a good stroll of a few hours. It meant leaving the likelihood of a, uh, of a day's wages just so they could come and hear him. These guys were desperate to come and see him. So 20, 15 to 20,000 people at the start of the chapter. By the end of the chapter, 20 or 15 people left. Okay? So we're in the danger zone here, people. Because if we get what's going on in this chapter, there's a good chance some of you will want to walk out. Some of you want to leave. Now, please, if, if you get that inclination, and it's because of what Jesus says, can I ask you to hold, hold, just hang on in there? This chapter helps us understand why in a, an estate with 12,000 people, there's less than 1% of them are found listening to the words of Jesus week by week. If you want to know why that is, it's here. I'm hoping it doesn't happen here today, but it could do. I want an explanation. I want to be able to make sense in my own mind as why it is school kids would be anywhere other than here on a Sunday morning. So if you're a school kid in the area, brilliant, but you're a freak. <laughs> Aren't you, Jason, on so many levels, but you're a freak? Why is it that, you, that people don't want to be here? Look at it at the end of, uh, it tells at the end of the chapter. So look at this, uh, 67 and 68, you can see it there. Verse 67, 68. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve disciples. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's why people don't want to come and gather and hear about Jesus. That's why the crowd started at 20,000 and ended up at 20, because people aren't bothered about eternal life, are they? There's only one person in this congregation I know who can manage to sustain and interest people in a conversation about eternal life, and that's Joe. But he's got a secret weapon, it's called beer. So he uses beer to get people to think about eternal life. But you and I both know that the fastest way to close down a conversation is to start talking about stuff that really matters. They don't mind talking about the fussy, they don't mind talking about clothes, they don't mind talking about how full your credit card is, they don't mind talking about the woes and the difficulties of life, but when you start saying, well, what is life really all about? Could it be that there is a life beyond the grave and Jesus has something to say about it? People aren't interested in eternal life, are they? I guess what is the central theme of this passage. Eternal life. How do you know whether you are not interested in eternal life? This is the answer. You find Jesus boring. So through this chapter, Jesus is going to drop some really massive things. He's going to shatter worldviews. He's going to expose sin. He's going to show how foolish we are, chasing after stuff that won't satisfy. He's going to talk and offer eternal life. But because the people in this chapter are only looking for a prophet with a new philosophy, or some sort of life coach to give them a few tips, or a social activist that will make them feel better about themselves, they're going to reject Jesus because he's so much more than just that. If all they're looking for is that, they won't be prepared for the gospel. They won't be prepared 
for the great news of Jesus, the bread of heaven, who blows people's minds, who is the glorious saviour, and who can give them eternal life. Because they don't want it. It's not even on their radar. And do you know what the big obstacle, I was talking to you a minute ago, the big obstacle is you have to fight for that, don't you? You and your Christian life, if you're a believer here today, you know that everything everywhere tells you, think about now. Now I like films, and I know quite a lot about films that are out. I keep up with all the current trailers. I was racking my brain last night trying to think of a film, the central thesis of which is to get you to think about eternal things. Can you think of one? Possibly one or two if you squeezed it in. The best one I came up with was Gladiator, because at the end of it, with the nice sort of like music, he got to go to walk around with feel, in fields touching corn, and that was eternal life. Could you think of what, John? You're good on this kind of thing. No? Good. Okay, carry on. Uh, go on. Braveheart. That talks about victory now, doesn't it? It's victory now, isn't it? Everything that you get pumped at you is about finding life now. You're a nutter. You're a whack job if you think about eternal life beyond the now. So that's why you're not going to be interested in Jesus. And you find that it's going to descend into pettiness. We're going to find a bunch of people who say, Jesus, we like this bit about you. But that bit, you know, the eternal life bit, not interested. And we're going to find that you cannot edit or remix Jesus. You take Jesus as he is. You receive what he brings or you don't get him at all. He's Jesus. He's the Lord. He's the giver of eternal life. You don't try and barter and bargain with him. So listen, we need to go back to the beginning of the chapter, and we're going to see this in three headings. We've got the three headings. I hope these work for us today. Okay, verses 1 through to 15 is the power to provide life miraculously. We're going to get a proof and evidence so we can know for sure. Then we're going to see the problem of pursuing the wrong kind of life. And then we're finally going to end up with looking at the reality of what for some people is a disappointing saviour. And I hope you can see the irony of that. All right? So let's dig straight in, okay, the power to provide life miraculously. And we need to see that this feeding of the 5,000 was no ordinary picnic in the park. Look at verse 4, can you see it there? Uh, Actually, we'll start back at the beginning of the chapter. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him there because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. So why are they going after him? They're like a magic man. This guy we like, he's like a, a lifetime su- subscription to Booper. He fixes us when things are bad, and if there's one thing we want, it's to feel well. Anybody put their hand up to say they want to feel unwell? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> really nice Thanks, Kathy. Anybody put their hand up to say, I want to feel well? Brilliant. I want to do good on this day's work. This guy we like. We're going to follow him. We're going to walk to find him. We're going to work to get there. Because they like the miracle man. Uh, where are we? So, verse 3. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. And it was the Jewish Passover feast was near. Now, that's important. Passover time. Think Christmas for a Jewish person. Think about the time when, well, it was a time of heightened expectation, of, of remembering of God's great deeds. A time when God brought out his chosen people from the land of Egypt and he brought them to himself with great acts of redemption, glorious acts of judgment, wonderful acts of salvation. But what they also remember 
people were brought out of Egypt and led through the wilderness, a bit like this wilderness, they were as good as dead. Why were they as good as dead? Because when you're in the desert and you're in the wilderness, there ain't no grub. There ain't no plants. There ain't no food. There's very little water. And so part of their Passover remembering was how God had delivered on his people bread from heaven to sustain them on their journey to the promised land. Do you understand that? They hadn't provided it. They grumbled. They fought against it. They made it as difficult as they possibly could for God to do what he was going to do. But at Passover, they remembered how God intervened and sent life-sustaining, life-giving bread through the dude called Moses. And some of you remember that from when we looked at Exodus before. So it was a bleak picture back in the days of the Passover. They were the walking dead. They were the living dead. There was no way to survive except God miraculously provided. And we're supposed to see the same when we look at verses 4 through to 7. Look down there. The Jewish Passover feast was near. And when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, I love Philip, <laughs> where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And he asked Philip, because he knows Philip's an idiot. He's a bit of a sass, sassy mouth, as we're going to find out in a second. Um, where should we get bread, uh, buy bread for all these people? Jesus already knew the answer, because there was nowhere to buy bread for all these people. He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So you know, sometimes for us to put our trust in the Lord, he's got to expose our weakness and the impossibility of the situation for us to realise that it was definitely him, because we're a bit like, duh. Then Philip answered, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for, this one, for, for each one to have a bite which I think is sassy mouth for, well, you want us to go get work so we can feed these people? You know we'd be working for eight months, don't you, Jesus? And then we see verse 8. Uh, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, and we'll find out what he says in just a second. So I like Philip's sassy mouth. He's going to, it's going to take a miracle of provision to feed these people of, excuse me, but biblical proportions. So it's all eyes on Jesus. Verse 8 we find the Hebrew happy meal. Okay? You see the Hebrew happy meal? Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. There, were plenty, there was plenty of grass in that place, eyewitness account, and the men sat down with about 5,000 of them. So 5,000 men plus women, families, somewhere between 15 and 30,000. Think most of Goodison filled... Okay, could have some part filled. Jesus then took the loaves, of which there weren't a fat lot, there was five small barley loaves, gave thanks and distributed those uh, to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And at this point, I just, I'd love to have been there. I don't know what, I mean, he wouldn't have come with a carrier bag, the little lad, would he? Or one of the nice wicker baskets. He probably had it sort of wrapped up in sort of hessian sacking cloth. And so he's sort of, don't think really clean loaves that are all the same shape from over at the Morrisons and sort of like cellophane fish. Think grubby, mangy, probably, you know, stale rock hard. Okay. And Jesus just walks around as happy as Larry. And then, some for you, some for you, some for you. And the disciples go, shut up, that's what They're thinking of the excuse to give the next bit. Some for you, some for you. Some. And all of them had, what does it say? He did the same with the fish when they had all had enough to eat. Now remember, these are people who, they didn't bank on three meals a day. They banked on one meal a day. 
disciples were here, they all had enough to eat. He said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. He feeds 20,000 people plus, utterly full. Now, let's think about food for a minute. Me and my wife were having a discussion. And she was honest enough to say she wakes up thinking about food. Thanks for that. I wake up thinking of food too. Does anybody else want to admit that they wake up thinking of food? Hallelujah, we've got some honest people. Brilliant. Have you noticed how there's this hunger thing that's built into us? This sort of, well, what is hunger? It's, it's very powerful, isn't it? It's a sense of absence. It's a sense that something is missing. It's a, there's an ache. It's like a warning that you need something. And if you let it go on long enough, if you're hungry for something, you'll do very odd things to get it. You'll even kill people to get it. But you, you know, no kid has to be taught to take the last piece of cake, because when they see it, they want it, and the hunger demands to be obeyed. And when we, when we add something nice to it, have you noticed how the memory carries on? Can I give you a bit of advice? Never shop hungry. Has anybody tried it? Don't you spend twice as much when you shop hungry? Because you've got, as you see the food, you get memories of satisfaction. Oh, I could murder a currant bun. A Sarah Lee chocolate cat. Sorry, I'm not being helpful now. You're not going to listen to Jesus. Okay. Um, We get this fullness of memory. And here, Jesus, when he's there, they've all had enough to eat. When Jesus is there, and when Jesus does a miracle, when Jesus provides, there is full satisfaction. You lack nothing. Isn't heaven going to be amazing? You lack nothing. There's no hunger or thirst. When he's there, it's banished. And only an idiot would miss who Jesus is showing himself to be here. He is the one who provided back at the first Passover. He is the one who sent the bread. He is God. And you'd expect your hunger to disappear when God is with you, wouldn't you? But they don't see it, do they? They think with their bellies. Anybody ever done that before? I have. Look at verse 14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. So there was one who promised to do the same sort of stuff Moses did. Although it wasn't Moses who gave them the bread from heaven, he was the sort of messenger boy who told them, by the way, God is going to send you message, uh, um, stuff from heaven. So he knew to accept, expect somebody who would do what Moses did, but better, but they can't see past the physical, the material, they can't see past stuff. And you can't blame them for what they're thinking, can you, at this point? They're so excited. They're sitting there and going, imagine what could happen if this guy was the head of state. Whoa! It'd be like going on one of them package deal, all-inclusive holidays, where you roll up at breakfast and you get champagne. And you sort of, you've got all, you stuff yourself, and if you're really sort of shady, you stuff your pockets full of stuff for lunch, because, yeah, you're a cheapskate. And then, you get, and then you go and you do your day thing on the beach, and you come back and check in, and, and um, all of this, is Marion in? Asparagus and all that sort of stuff, you know, if you're a veggie. Oh, okay. 
wouldn't you? And you get all that, and they're like, whoa! He's like the maitre d' par excellence. That's a bit French, if you like that. The maitre d' par excellence. He's got everything we could want. He's going to feed us fully. We like this guy. He's the magic man. He gives us stuff now, stuff we want. And back then, in that day, 85% of your household income was spent on food. If you've got somebody who could give you free food, you've got to spend your money on other stuff, like hairdos and, and gadgets and stuff like that. This guy we like. Imagine if he was the head of state. He'd fix the NHS. The dude can walk on water so the flood damage wouldn't be a problem. Um, he'd fix everything. And so just at this point where they're all seeking after Jesus, the end of verse 14, what does he do in verse 15? Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. What is he thinking? Can I tell you, Jesus goes away at this point to avoid a disaster. He goes away to avoid a disaster. He won't play their game. Put it this way. He doesn't want them missing the best thing because they're fixated on a good thing. Could that be a risk for you? It is for me every day in my Christian life. I've got good stuff in my life, none of which I really deserve or earned. The Lord has put good stuff in my life. He has fed me with lots of good stuff. And my difficulty is that sometimes I'm happy to miss the best thing and just be fixated on the good thing. But Jesus won't allow him to do that here, will he? So what has happened? He's demonstrated his power to provide miraculously. A day when bread meant life and no bread meant death, he gives it with loads left over. He brings life. He is showing them to be the God who gives life. Now this is so important, so important for you and I. We both need life. But what kind of life do we need most? To answer that, we need to look at our second point. Okay, so we're going to jump over. I haven't got time to do the walking on the water at the moment. I'm going to focus in on this. The second thing you need to see here is the problem of pursuing the wrong kind of life. And here's the thing. Here's the thing that if you don't know what your problem is, the likelihood is you're going to go and look for the wrong solution. Let me get to say that again. I didn't come out clearly. If you don't know what the problem is, you'll try and find something that isn't the right solution. Now, verse 22, what are they doing? Let's read it. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. What does that basically mean? It tells us that for those of you who've seen the old cartoons, anybody here remember the old cartoon, Wacky Races? Do you remember that? Where all the bunches of cars are chasing after them, and they're going this way, and they're going that. It's basically, imagine that, but in boats across the lake. All right? It's about four or five miles across, and they're going from Tiberias over to Bethesda, over to Capernaum, over this way and that way, and they've walked that way and gone that way, and what they're doing, they're working really, really hard, really trying, they're labouring hard, and what are they trying to do? Find Jesus. In fact, in verse 14, it told us that they were seeking something about Jesus. Here in this bit, they're working really hard to find Jesus. 
And yet, verse 25 and 26, is he impressed by this? When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? In other words, why are you looking away from us? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw the miraculous signs. Hold on a minute. They're standing there going, you are? We've just seen you get bread from hell, you're bread out of nothing. We did see the miraculous sign. We saw it. We saw you feed 20,000 people with a happy meal. But Jesus is saying, no, you didn't see the miraculous sign. You saw something miraculous, but you didn't see what it was pointing to. It was pointing beyond itself, so you're now seeking me for bad reasons. You're not seeking me because you've seen and understood and grasped what I was showing you. You're seeking me because you want stuff from me. They aren't pursuing Jesus for his divinity, for his grace, for his sovereign power, which is what they were made to do. Why are they pursuing him? Answer, they want to use Jesus to get what they want. Have you ever been there? You know when you're doing it, when you pray for something, and you don't get it, and you're angry. We have this little roadmap as to what our life should look like, maybe a little sketch. It's not quite how we want it to be. Maybe it's ill health. Maybe it's a difficult circumstance. Um, maybe it's you just haven't got as many toys as you wish you had. And you pray, Lord, fix it. And you start to look out and you see that the Lord seems to have allowed other people to have those things, whether it's good health, whether it's plenty of stuff, whether it's a certain situation, whether it's a relationship, or something like that. And rather than be happy for them, that the Lord has allowed that for them, you simply get angry with Jesus because he hasn't given you what you want. You're seeking stuff. You're seeking stuff. You're just doing what these people do. We do this, don't we, all the time? I told you it was big. Married it to get over. And why do they do that? Well, I think the answer here is that they cannot see what their real problem is. Or should I say their biggest problem is? And my question to you is, can you see what their biggest problem is? This one actually turns up, and I think Jesus uses certain language to help us with this. And the language that he uses is in verse 27. He talks about two kinds of food. Let's look at it together. Here's, can you see it? Do not work for food that spoils, that type of food, A, but for food that endures to eternal life. Now, at the start of the chapter... Uh, oh, sorry, I'm reading from the wrong bit. No, I'll get that right. Okay, so what does he do? He says there are two kinds of food, and by the way, he helps them with both. He's not indifferent to their material need. But he says one type of food is material and perishes. It wears out. It's physical stuff. It's the stuff of now. But there is one kind of food that your inner person, your soul needs, your immaterial components. And if you get that food, you have a strength for eternal life. It's something that you get given. And your problem is, he says to them, your problem is no matter how full your bodies get with food and stuff and material things now, your souls will always be starving. You will be the spiritual living dead. Who's seen a zombie movie here? Okay, I thought I'd try and do it. Yeah, you've seen a zombie movie. And the whole point is, is that their hearts aren't beating, their bodies are cold, 
but they're sort of half-living. Oh, and they're, they're at the whim of their desires. They say, oh, brain, oh, What you do 
if you think if I get enough stuff, or enough attention, or get enough drink, or go to enough parties, or listen to enough music, or be fashionable enough, or get enough sex, or enough recognition from people, what if I get all those things? I'll be alive! Can I tell you, grown-ups are no more sophisticated than that, are we? Are we? We will feed our soul on almost anything, because we're starved. Our souls are craving, but it's not for something. Our souls are craving for the one we were made for. Someone. Will we recognize him when we see him? And of course they don't, do they? Look at verse 28, doesn't look good. Can you see there in verse 28? Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? So they're asking a religious question. How do I get God in my back pocket? What stuff do I need to do? What works and things can I use to sort of, well, make him give me what I want? And isn't that what we try to do? What prayers must I pray? What church must I attend? What Bible must I read? What things do I do to twist God's arm to give me what I want as if we can earn it? And then in verse 29, what does he say? Jesus answered, the work of God is this. So there is a work of God. believe in the one who he has sent. Can anybody do that? Can I tell you, that verse is both the easiest verse in the Bible and the hardest verse in the Bible. It's the easiest because Jesus is saying, if you want new spiritual life, you have to be willing to receive it as a gift. It has been done for you. It's the easiest thing in the world, but it's the hardest thing because you don't want to receive a gift and you want to fill your soul up with anything other than this. It's the easiest and the hardest thing to believe in Jesus, isn't it? Every day I have to fight to believe in Jesus when really what I'd rather do is trust in stuff I can see and gorge my soul and my stomach on stuff here. No, you can only receive this. It's a gift. You can't do pay-as-you-go religion. You can't build up some heavenly air miles so that you can get in and receive... Um, blessings from God, you have to trust in the miraculous provision of the bread from heaven. And this is where it all gets a bit awkward and disappointed, because they're not happy about this when they get told this. This is why, this is the point where they start to move away. And their first strategy to try and move away is to look at Jesus and say, oh yeah, prove it. See that in verse 30? What miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? They're trying to find an excuse to avoid the truth that Jesus is telling them. What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so they're trying to avoid. Forget the fact that they've just seen the miracle that Jesus has done. They're sort of thinking, hmm, okay, prove it, Jesus. If you're claiming to be the center of this, prove it. He already has. Jesus says to them, verse 32, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. It has always been this way. Think back, he says to them. It has always been that you get life by God's intervention and coming in. You've got to receive from outside. It has never been any other way. That's how serious your predicament is. That's how great your need is. And they still don't get it. So they say in verse 34, can you see it there? Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And at this point, I think the thing they're thinking of is, um, do you remember the Holy Grail? What's the myth around the Holy Grail? That if you tip 
water in and drink, what's that? What happens? Live forever. Or it's like the elixir of life. They see this as some sort of magical talisman thing. Give us some bread, Jesus, that means that we won't grow old and look wrinkly in the mirror. Give us some bread, Lord Jesus, that means we don't have to work as hard and do whatever we jolly well think with our days. They want some sort of answer. They want it devoid of God. They don't want him involved in it. He says, do you want the bread, do you? He says, you want the bread? I am the bread of life, verse 35. I am. I am. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. You need me for eternal life. You need me. Feed on me. And already Jesus is telling them that they're just not going to believe. Verse 37. Sorry, verse 36. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. Isn't that our battle today? Isn't that our battle? It's so hard to believe that Jesus is all we need. The appetites, the desires, the pursuits, the shiny things, the advertisements, they come at us every day. You know, we say, don't we? We say, right, if Jesus appeared to me and did this, I would believe. No, you wouldn't. There's a spiritual thing that is wrong with us that we need fixing. And so that's what he talks about in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father wills it, the Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And so we're moving quickly on to point, the, the third point here. We've seen that there is a problem, there's a spiritual blockage. We will not want what Jesus offers. So the question is, is when you face the reality of a disappointing saviour who doesn't give you what you want, how are you going to cope with it? And so I've tried to turn this one around, and this is just to finish, it'll just take us five or so minutes to finish this, I hope. Jesus is the disappointing saviour. But knowing that he's not here to give us what we want, but what we need, how are we going to push on and move towards him? It uses the words here of believe in him, come to him, look to him. Later on in the passage, feed on him. He wants and expects the people, as they listen, some will be disappointed and say, I'm off. Others will come near and start doing that more and more. So what do you have to do to be disappointed in Jesus? Well, the first thing we find here is that you've got to not let, sorry, you've got to uh, demand that he is your personal Jesus rather than be the real Jesus. If you're going to be disappointed with him, well, you've got to let him, you've got to try and make him your own personal Jesus. And that's how they tried, didn't they? They tried to bend Jesus to what they wanted, to use him to get what they wanted. So ask yourself, what do I want and how do I feel in life when I don't get it? When I don't get more stuff, when I don't get more respect, when I don't get more food, when I don't get more love, are you angry? 
Do you grumble? Are you anxious? Watch out that you're not trying to use Jesus. Because the best way to be disappointed in Jesus is to just try to use him to your own end. He should be the centre. He's the Lord. But if he's not the centre and you're trying to use him for something else, you will be disappointed. Okay, another way to be disappointed with Jesus that we find here is to ignore his outrageous claims of grace as your only hope. Look at verse 37 again. Uh, Start of verse 36. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. So we've got a belief problem. How do you overcome a belief problem? Do you need more facts and figures? Well, sometimes that helps. That won't overcome the problem. How does he overcome the problem? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Let me try and put this in illustration language. What can de-zombie a zombie? What can awaken the walking dead? Answer, a miracle of divine intervention only. That's the only thing that can do it. Jesus' offer of salvation is a bit like a dog whistle. What do you notice when somebody blows a dog whistle? Can you hear it? You can't hear it. It's making a racket. You know it's making a racket because the dogs are like, oh, like, shut that racket up. But can you and I hear it? No, we can't. Jesus talking to this crowd was him like using a dog whistle. Because they're blind to their need for salvation, they cannot open their heart and see it. So what he's saying is the only hope for anybody is if God the Father calls a people to himself and says, I'm going to unstop their ears by a miracle, I'm going to make them be able to understand the dog whistle. Okay? They are trapped in sin and deadness. They're heading for their, which is a natural punishment for de-godding God, not allowing him to be the centre of life. They're deaf to his grace and they're powerless. And so verse 37 tells us that the reason, if you're a Christian today, I want you to glory in this. The reason you have come to Christ is not because you're smarter and better than anybody else. The reason Steve Casey stands before you as a Christian today is not that he spotted something that other people haven't spot. It's not that he is more worthy than anybody else is. It is because, for some reason, that utterly eludes me, and I assume it's something to do with his ridiculous grace and partly sense of humour, he decided, God the Father decided to give me to his Son for the glory of the Son. Now that changes the way I see myself, doesn't it? A spiritual work has been done in me so I can see and hear that eternal life is more valuable than things now. So imagine me standing on a foggy cliff top. I'm marching along as happy as I can. And because it's foggy, I can't see very far in front. And I'm marching along, and I'm right near the edge. And what I don't realise is that there is a thousand foot drop in front of me, and at the bottom, very big spiky things. There's a precipice that if I take a few more steps in that direction, the only thing I get is death. And so, left to my own devices, I think I'm going in the right way, I think I'm doing the right thing, I feel clever and smart in and of myself. And in that moment, the Lord does something. He blows away the fog so I can see the reality of my situation and act accordingly for a future hope of life. Do you see that? 
So a day came when the Lord went, and I could see Jesus as the bread of life for the first time. And I willingly and joyfully chose to receive him as that. If you want to be disappointed in Jesus, you've got to ignore all of that. You've got to ignore the way he moves in sovereign grace towards people. Jesus doesn't just make us winnable, he actually wins us and draws us and calls him to himself. You've got to ignore that. There's something else you've got to ignore if you want to be disappointed in Jesus. You've got to ignore the personal touch. Look at this, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. personal. God puts his hand on specific people and says, you are going to be raised up on that last day. You are going to be part of an eternal community. I want you personally. I will raise you up. I will assure your future. I will pledge my honour on holding you so even when you feel too weak to hold on to me, I will hold on to you. In fact, in the following verses, four times comes the phrase, I will raise you up at the last day. I will raise you up at the last... Who's going to do it? Him. So on that last day, I won't be swaggering in heaven going, look at me and what I did. I'll be going, wow, he raised up even me? Despite all my best efforts to wreck it? Now that's soul satisfying. Have you stopped and fed on that? Have you stopped and pondered how Jesus, believer, goes after you? Think on it. Feed on it. Live it. The assurance, I have a future and he won't let me go. So I say it quieter for those of you who don't like people shouting. I have a future and he will not let me go. That's something satisfies. Fourthly and finally, if you want to be disappointed with Jesus as the Saviour, you have to forget what it costs. And here's the thing about bread. Have you noticed that for bread to be made and for bread to benefit us, something else has to die? Back in the first century, they always knew that. What is it bread made of? Is it maize? What's it made of? Wheat? What do you make bread of? Somebody tell me, I haven't got a clue. Flour? What does that come from? Wheat? So it's bread made of wheat. Oh, that's why celiacs can't have Oh, yeah, I'm with you now. Okay, I'm catching up. But the point is, you can't have live wheat and bread to live off, can you? The bread has to die. Have you noticed that for you to benefit from the bread, it has to be broken and taken into you? You have to break it. Verse 49 to 51 says this. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. His body was broken so that we could have eternal life. He gave himself for you to have a future and a life. And you want to stuff yourself on stuff here. Maybe I should ask, will you stuff yourself now on him? So what should we do? Well, verse 35 tells us to come. 
him and to feed on him. Verse 40 tells us to look on him, behold him, take him deep within. Verse 58 tells us to feed on this bread. Take him deep inside of you. When you're tempted to want to fill yourself with stuff dear, say, no, I've got Jesus. Verse 27 says, stop pursuing food that spoils. Work, believe the promise. This is what it means to feed on Jesus. In a minute when we sing, um, bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. What it's saying is you focus and feed on all that it is that Jesus has won for you and all that it is that Jesus has promised you. He won't and can't let you go. Now is that a soul satisfier? Amen, it is. He will never, ever reject me. Wow. You lot might. My bank manager might. But he will not reject me. He will raise me up on that last day. Don't we struggle and fight for ways to be raised up? Oh, I hope if I get this or I do that, I'll feel raised up. If I get that location or that car or that thing or that person. I remember when I was in year nine of Valentine's Day, I felt raised up because she said yes and received the card and the presents. I felt raised up. Nothing could flatten my spirit because I had the girlfriend I wanted. She dumped me two weeks later. <laughs> you see, if you're looking for something like a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a financial solution to your problems or recognition before people to raise you up, I can't raise you up now or in the last day. It's fake. But Jesus has the power. He says now... If you are in him, you are raised up even now with a view on being raised up even greater on that last day. Now that is so satisfying. I have eternal life now. I might look like a zombie, but spiritually I'm alive in Jesus Christ. Now I can feed on each of those things every day. So I can get up in the morning and despite the rush of desires for food and stuff, now I can say no. He won't let me go. I will never be rejected. He will raise me up. I have eternal life now. How many of us who are believers live a Christian life feeling a bit starved? I've got to stop doing bad things. I've got to stop using my credit card in a bad, bad way. I've got to stop having those disgusting thoughts. And if I, if I fix all of that and that all happens, then I'll feel satisfaction. If I can just stop that and be good and work hard, I'll have a deeper joy and satisfaction. No! You just need to feed on Jesus. You just need to look to him. Behold him and all that he's done. You need to feed on him. Take him deep inside. Trust in him and all that he's doing. Some of us are trying to feed off the oughts and the shoulds. Don't do that. Feed on Jesus. We're going to sing this bread of heaven now. Feed me now and evermore. If you are not a believer, can I tell you today's a great day to change that? If you sense that some of the fog has lifted, you can hear the whistle, and you know that Jesus is important, then in that case, pray this song. We're going to sing it, so the first verse is sung at the end as well, and sing it so four verses. If that is for you today, then get your spiritual life back, be awakened from being a zombie. But if you already are a believer, can I just say, sing this with gusto and re- rejoice that Jesus is the bread for your soul. And all that he has won and all that he has done is for you. Feed on Jesus, the bread of heaven.